0: Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of uh, Amethix Technologies based in Leuven, Belgium. Today I'm not alone. I am with uh, Mikkel Setnes, Lead Data Scientist at DreamData.io. Hi Mikkel, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm doing fine. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Happy to be like, here. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's a pleasure. I was saying like, I, I, I see, I saw your company online. and uh, the name, first of all, spot on. <laughs> Dream Data. Yeah, exactly, Data. right? That's what you want. <laughs> really cool. And also the tagline was something that really attracted me uh, that, that goes like, connect, analyze, scale, repeat. And that's really, really, really uh, an interesting one. So what is Dream Data? Uh, what do you guys do? So
1: in a nutshell, we are a revenue analytics and attribution platform mainly for B2B companies. That means that we are uh, collecting, transforming, cleaning and modeling all the data that is relevant for doing revenue analytics for a B2B company. So we collect data from across the uh, the entire tech stack, that being ad platforms, marketing, automation, product usage, then we organize it and make it ready for analytics and modeling. Um, so I sort of normally see us as a first wave of uh, of more wide domain specific tools, because you have all these uh, general purpose tools coming out, sort of solving one specific data niche. The problem of those tools are that they can't really solve the data preparation type problem, because that is usually very domain specific by nature. Uh, different for different industries and especially for different business models. So right. when that dream data focuses on uh, on B2B, it allows us to sort of do more of, most of this data manipulation, data wrangling and, and sort of uh, things like that for our customers. So they get it out of the box uh, and don't have to stop a big tech stack for doing this. I mean, we all heard these, uh, saying about the 80 percent of data professionals time being spent of data wrangling yeah, i think we all heard it, that it, exactly
0: that's, that was like i wanted to interrupt you saying that's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. one of the most time consuming tasks of uh, of the data analytics pipeline indeed the, the wrangling the cleaning the well first of all choosing the right data for the right thing right exactly and getting it out of the
1: system where it was and how does it then match together with the rest of the data that you have, because otherwise it's hard to analyze things in one go if they don't match. Um, So what I usually say that we're able to leapfrog our customers from a state where data is scattered all over different business tools uh, and get into a situation where data is organized, cleaned and standardized, and then ready for
0: where the fun begins you can sort of say. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, I agree with that. Well, I assume that, uh, I strongly believe actually, that you guys do a lot of important and very interesting uh, machine learning models. Uh, and we'll speak about that in, in, a, in a few minutes, in a few moments. But before getting there, uh, who are the type of customers? What type of customers do you guys usually deal with? Yeah,
1: so I already mentioned the B2B focus. um as that data is quite unique compared to the B2C case. So most of our, comp- uh, our customers are SaaS companies. They are between I don't know, 50 to a couple of hundred employees. I don't think we necessarily have a specific industry for, for these SaaS co- companies, but a very common denominator between them are that it's companies that are either growing fast or looking to grow very fast. So they are desiring this opportunity to sort of leapfrogging ahead and say, okay, it's fine that you need to set up. We we acknowledge that we need to collect and clean and transform and orchestrate all these touch points we have for our customers, but we don't want to hire a team of 10 people to do that and set that up. We want to get right where we can reap some value um, right. because we need to grow at a certain rate. Yeah, that um, makes sense. I mean,
0: uh, these companies, I believe, they want to focus on their business, which clearly is not wrangling data, Is it's other things. Exactly. And yeah, okay. So they want to automate as much as they can the most tedious parts and components of a data pipeline, essentially. It, exactly. And
1: then, of course, it varies from... Uh, some of our customers are, very, are interested in our... We, of course, have some out-of-the-box... Uh, analytics and models to look at, uh, but we also offer the data um, free of charge so people can go in and continue the work uh, with that that data. So say that you want a very specific machine learning model, built on that data, then you can just take that data in your data warehouse and continue uh, your modeling process without worrying about all the orchestration of getting the data collected and cleaned in that uh, state, ready for the model.
0: Pretty cool and uh, definitely super useful, (laughs) especially for those who are not manipulating data as a a daily job. Okay, Uh, Mikael, you mentioned already uh, B2B a number of times Um, And the question is really natural for me. Uh, You know, we hear a lot of B2C, B2B, and the data realm is quite diverse, quite different between the two. Um, Now, of course, there are a million differences between a B2B and a B2C type of business. Uh, But my question to you is, when it comes to data, uh, what's the probably the the difference that is really worth mentioning today?
1: Mm, yeah, so great question. Um, I guess from, a, a, it all boils down to the different nature of the business or how you sell in the different cases. Um, so B2B is perhaps a little bit more digital than B2C. Uh, most uh, B2B companies would of course would not advertise in normal television, for example. Um, also, the sales cycles are much longer compared to the normal consumer goods. And you also have more people involved. Um, it's not a single person making the uh, the purchase in, in the end. And then, of course, you probably could also say that you have less uh, impulsive shopping in the B2B world, <laughs> uh, it's harder to, to make people, to uh, make them see an ad, and then five minutes after, buy the product. That's right. probably easier if you're selling a shoe or something, consumer goods. And that, of course, makes the, uh, the data different because even our largest customers, uh, and we have sort of companies that are unicorn, uh, size that there are many customers. They are not even close to getting the same amount of closed deals as Amazon would have when they are selling some kind of shoe to people or people choosing a movie on Netflix or ordering an Uber. Uh, and it, it's not even a it's not even a contest. Uh, it's way fewer. And it's not it's not a just a matter of oh they need to be a bigger company they will never reach that amount of closed deals. So in the the day where I spent most of my my time, we are are compensating this lack of very many deals or many sales. You're sort of compensating that by having a good data quality, and then you're trying to achieve a very horizontal data set uh, compared to the very vertical data set that you have in the B2C world
0: right. and that that was exactly where I was going. like the 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 volume of data sometimes actually many times uh, determines the methodologies and the type of analytics that you can do, of course. and and yet there is kind of a dilemma or well, there is you know this this major difference between, for example, data centric uh, AI and model centric AI that is pretty much determined by how much data do you have? Like the volume, the actual volume of the data that you have at your disposal. So is that reflected in your business as well? It definitely is.
1: It's basically when you do these things that we have a million million users, that's what you would call, then you get the the last data, whereas many of our customers, you feel like you have a lot of data because you have a lot of different information on each deal, the East thing you sell, you have a lot of different stakeholders that were doing something. Uh, They have a lot of interactions with different tools, but it's still only one deal. So you have very wide data. So many different touch points along that that you have then collected carefully, but there's still only one of them. And that sort of leads me to a very big point of this is that you need methods that are suitable for these wider data sets compared to what is mostly what most examples of AI and data science. It comes from the big tech companies. It comes from the ones that are pioneered by very vertical data where you have a lot of a lot of different objects, but maybe fewer interactions with each object.
0: And so, indeed, I mean, the Google of the world and the Facebook of the world are just, you know, unique entities, in fact. And so, probably the only ones that in these times can, for example, retrain a a massive deep learning model on, you know, terabytes of data if they want, uh, because they have it, they own. But there are a million other companies who don't have this data at their disposal. And so, you already mentioned, partially, they have to think something different. They have to do something some kind of analytics in a let's say a different way. Definitely, they cannot go with a, a massive deep learning training strategy because they would not have the most important ingredient, which is data. Uh, and so, what are what are the typical challenges at Dream Data when you have when in front of you you have clients or or, or users or well companies with uh, limited volumes of data? What happens in those cases?
1: Yeah. So the usually that was when I say that's where one you need to have a very strong foundation on how to collect that data. You need to be very strict that you're doing it right because each data point is then a larger portion of your entire data set. So you need to be a little bit more careful in that sense, but it's also about the methods that you're choosing and the questions that you're able to ask. So the different Models, maybe sometimes the math could be perceived as simpler compared to a huge neural network, but it's also models that then presume gives another opportunity, namely to ask better, better why questions. Because the math might be simpler, but the features then becomes much more important. And maybe sometimes you actually need to be worried a little bit more about what data you put in you can't expect the model to figure it out by itself sort noise from signal you actually need to guide it a little bit more meaning that you're relying on well well engineered features much more than
0: you would in a huge neural network i'm so glad that you actually said this because when deep learning came out you know uh, there was this misconception indeed that deep learning would have solved all the problems that would have uh, indeed created or found these features, uh, you know, basically the feature engineering task, auto- completely automated. Anyway, there were people believing in that. And now that's that's true only for certain types of problems, and we have seen exactly. probably computer, computer vision, probably one of them. But there are many, many other problems that I believe that the Dream Data you guys deal with more the other type of problems, where indeed automating feature engineering is. Uh, extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so you need to be creative, you need still manual intervention, or, you know, you need human brains in action rather than deep learning, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's also the part of questions in the realm where I'm from, where it's, it's attribution, it's it's a lot about the why. It's almost as important to get, to get the model to explain itself as it is to... Hit a very accurate prediction because, as we talked about in the beginning, our catchphrase of figuring out what works and then scale that. That is exactly the part where it might be that I'm not hitting the best prediction, but I'm hitting what actually works and what drives the sales I'm doing or the marketing campaign or product usage, et cetera, et cetera. And then that, mm-hmm. that's a little bit of a different ball game that's actually. Maybe better solved without these huge neural networks that are, for many purposes, black boxes.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I, I, We've seen this many times, also in healthcare, for example, where you know it's better to understand what are the drivers of a certain disease or or you know biological compound, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, rather than having you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent accuracy and uh, zero explanation of what's going on down there.
1: Exactly. It's yeah. almost as if, if it's a decision tree, it's almost as your feature importance almost becomes the output because right. that's what you're, you're really interested in. I always that's have this, this funny example where people saying, okay, I want to build a model on how to get more revenue in my store that sells, uh, that sells something. That's an important question. I want to build a model that can explain the amount of customers that I have now And then the problem is I might get a very good model, but if my model uses the number of people that are heading to the register with their credit card in their hand, if that's a feature of my model, it's not really going to tell me anything other than to get more cost, to get more revenue, you need to get more people to go towards the register with a credit card in your hand, which is next to useless information. So in that sense, it's much more important to get... The features that you're actually able to impact to so the feature that will drive your uh, your decision and figure out which one of those are actually important. And in that yeah. sense, it's it's a little bit weird that there's an that healthcare is a good example of a similar thing compared to sales and marketing. But it is mm-hmm. the same drivers here. It's just not the health. It's cool cash. You don't want to throw your money and your energy after something that you don't understand and don't know if it works, you want to throw them after something where you can understand why the model is telling you to do
0: A or B. Makes perfect sense. So let's try to switch gear a bit here because uh, I'm getting excited. <laughs> so what are the typical methods or the methods that you at Dream Data are, uh, you know, most mostly busy with when it comes to low volumes of data Uh, explainability, and, of course, human-engineered features?
1: Yeah, so, of course, you'll start out as anything with with simple models, models that you could say are a little bit bookkeeping-ish because you're tracking what went on, you're assigning weights to it. This is a very important first step, also to make sure that your data makes sense, that there's not something hugely important that you're missing. These are the one models that you'll typically hear referred to as multi-touch attribution model. Then you can get a step further and be a little bit more clever about how you're counting stuff. Then you're ending up at, at Shapley uh, value models. Um, if people haven't heard it already, they should go back to your old episode and hear you talk about Shapley values. <laughs> um, highly recommend that. Thanks um, for the advertising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's sort of a more advanced form of counting, but it all boils down to here, you're really seeing are the features you have, are the things you're counting the right ones that will really show with these models because they are very easy to interpret. Then you go a step further saying, okay, now you're not counting just the the, the deals that was closed Um, you're also counting the ones that are not closed. So now you've got one step closer to what you will call uh, this more classification type problem. And this is where you're usually using things uh, here, things like Markov models or survival models, survival analysis models, uh, which are, again, something that is usually taken from biology, I think, which again has this distinction that you're actually able to, in a simple way, explain something because you already sort of encoded a way things work. You already encoded which features are affecting each other. And then of course, you end up in models even more advanced which will be various form of classification models, multivariate regression models, where I usually like to advertise them where the right one is to do Bayesian models here. Um, Mm -hmm. But that has a very Specific idea why patient models are ex- ex- exceptionally good at these things mm-hmm. it comes with the nature of
0: patient models. Well, so patient well, model. Yeah. Let's try, let's try to give a, a, a brief intro. I mean, of course, it's going to be impossible to introduce patient yeah. <laughs> statistics in ah, my episode.
1: Yeah. yeah, Then I'll return another episode talking about
0: that. <laughs> Maybe another two. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. But the generally patient models are or Bayesian statistics, models that derive from Bayes' theorem, um, which is that this very old piece of math that suddenly became exciting again with the advent of uh, more computational power. But the, what you'll then see in it, it's very similar to the normal, normal statistics, but you have this concept of a prior. Um, and this prior is basically like an extra set of data so now you're not just asking the normal machine learning question that given my data, how accurate is this model? You're saying, given my data and my prior knowledge, how accurate right.
0: is this? Could also be my belief and about a certain phenomenon, right? Exactly. And that, that, that's the
1: part that makes it powerful in a sense where you have wider data because usually there's a structure to that data. And that you actually want to inform the model about. And that's where it becomes important. Because normally you see, guess we've all seen these uh, big neural networks with vision where then it learns stripes and then it learns dots and then it learns different things in different layers. For the big neural nets, they learn it by themselves because you have a huge amount of data to do it on. When you have less data, you still want to have those kind of learnings but now you have to come with them. And sometimes it's actually even advantageous in a business perspective because you can then encode the business knowledge, the business analysts' knowledge into your model. So the model will actually inform you, okay, you thought it was here. Yeah, you're almost right. It needs to go in this direction, but the model cannot
0: shoot off to some weird thing. Yeah, exactly. So in fact, you can encode I, I'm trying to rephrase here for those who are probably less yeah. technical than us. Uh, you are know, try to encode the knowledge of, for example, the domain experts. So instead of firing them and say, hey, we have a deep yeah, learning yeah, yeah. that yeah. solves your problems, goodbye. You say, no, the last 20 plus years experience, we can encode that so that the neural network doesn't have to start, or whatever model, doesn't yeah. have to start from scratch. It can still use the data as evidence of that phenomenon, but... I can embed, inject some uh, prior knowledge, as you say, which is in, in fact the, the prior information that we already know, and so the model will save even time, right, in training. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And you can even encode
1: the structure of your data, which is a lot in uh, in marketing. You are, you are operate with hierarchies, where there is a certain hierarchy that something is a. Uh, let's say you're an insurance company, uh, you have. Uh, damages on different cars, then car A is similar to car B they are, but they are different brands. So they are, they are both cars, but different brands. So now you want to encode that knowledge of data into your model so the model actually knows that there are such things as two different type of cars. And it's similar to the part where, where you can see this thing in, in the image where now it has learned stripes. Now you are informing it. There is something called stripes and they look like this. So it is exactly as you say, you encode the domain expertise into your model, which is, of course, a very domain-specific thing to do, but that's also a way to utilize this
0: wide data to the fullest. Absolutely right. Well, there is another major difference, and I would like to... uh, intervene here. When it comes to Bayesian matters, Bayesian mothers, I'm also a big fan. So that's why my questions are very, very uh, you know, aggressive in a good way, I hope. Uh, um, well, the, the the outcome is not a number, it, it's a distribution. So w- which exactly. is much easier to digest, I find. Uh, when I try to explain, at least the, my personal experience, I would love to, to know yours, is when I try to explain to, to the business, uh, there is, you know, it's not like 42, but it's like, there is a probability of 90 plus percent that it's going to be 42. And, and they keep, they, they seem to grasp this concept much, much easier than saying it's 42. And then probably it's 44 and they have to measure an error, you know, they have to do an exercise, a mental exercise that is very far from human. <laughs> How did you find this in your, in your domain? Yeah, I think it, it, it's twofold because
1: some people are very fond of averages and will never want to move away from an average. That's a number. I understand that. <laughs> but there's also, I guess, the, the, the responsibility of data science. The world is not as simple as an average. And yeah. I find that when I present it as uncertainties that naturally comes out of a patient model, I'm also a lot more confident in what I'm saying because I actually know whether or not my model is that certain, or if the average is actually just in the middle of it could be one two thousand and now the average turned out to be a hundred, or is it a hundred plus minus one? Yeah. And that and I find, and as a if I was a business person, I would actually require that information because it's usually important. I mean, Absolutely. if I'm going to base my spend on something on a model, I would like to know how certain that model is. I mean, I would make it a requirement for (laughs) any use of a
0: model that I would know how certain is the model actually of this. You're absolutely right. I mean, we cannot expect that these things have zero error. We know that there is error. The important thing is being aware of it and, you know, try to quantify that error as well. So that's the most important part of the prediction, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really feel that. And I think that's a that's also when started to learn Bayesian methods. Maybe it's my background as a physicist that uh, feel that uncertainties are important, <laughs> um, but it really nice that it comes natural out of the model. It is something that you're that uh, that you'll always find, and it's always nice that it actually quantifies it. You don't have to do anything yeah. extra because a lot of other models, if you want to know how certain it is, you sort of have to do all kind of extra steps and change the data, manipulate it, do something to figure out how certain it is, where in these models, it comes out naturally. For it's free. Part of the, <laughs> yeah, it's part of the
0: way you, you train the model. I love it. You love it. We all love Bayesian. I mean, that's a fact. <laughs> it's the, it's <laughs> that's the, the new thing. That's the only thing about which we are not uncertain. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, pun uh, apart... Um, let's switch gear again, because I would like to touch with, uh, you know, touch another very important aspect of data, which is uh, privacy, personal information, confidentiality. As we all know, there are a ton of regulations out there, just not just GDPR, but, you know, GDPR is probably the tip of an iceberg. Um, and these regulations keep changing. Now, these regulations also put a lot of limitation to, uh, you know, to the companies uh, that indeed organize, manipulate, and process data. And definitely dream data is one of them. So my question to you is, well, first of all, do you deal with personal identifiable information or PII? Of course we
1: do. And that's (laughs) inevitable when you're tracking people. Um, So you you need to worry about it. Um, Not just because it's the law, but also because you need to be able to to figure out who's who uh, and you need to be Sure that you're doing that in a right ethical manner, um, and that of course you you need to be careful about how you're collecting it and what you're collecting. And as most people are aware, then third-party cookies are going away. Right. Um, I think they are mostly gone from from Apple's uh, devices, yeah. and it's also coming to uh, to the other browsers now. And that of course makes it harder, um, but it also makes that your you actually need to take control of your own data collection. Because the, the trick about the third party cookies was that you didn't have to do that much as a company. Hmm. I mean, then Google would do it for you. They would follow everybody around on the web, making the tracking where they were. Now Google are not able to do that anymore, but you're still able to track the people in your own job. Right. I mean, that that's still something that's uh, that's legal as long as you of course ask people, is it okay that we Right. Uh, that we do this yeah and of course you have a lot of these things that people you will probably see more of all these ways to get you to sign up to things because that is a way that you are now you are consenting to that that you are allowed to be tracked in, such, in some sense right not necessarily allowed to being sent spam emails with marketing <laughs> material but they are allowed to have your email because you you gave it yourself.
0: Well, definitely the I call it the far west of data is is pretty much in the past now, uh, yeah. thanks to these regulations. To be honest with you, I want to give my personal opinion. Also, I, I've done that many times on on this show. Uh, I do believe that the problem of uh, you know privacy and confidentiality. It's not a technological problem. We have the technical tools to solve that problem, but it's more a political problem. It's more a, a human problem. It's a, a regulation problem. And so, you know, uh, all the things that you mentioned, uh, no tracking, no more cookies, consent-based data analytics will change, will keep changing the way we analyze data. We, uh, you know, we are custodians of the data or ownership of the data and uh, conservation and, uh, and transformation for sure. Mikael, I would like to know your team. I mean, the Dream team, as I said at the beginning of the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, Who are the people uh, behind Dream Data?
1: Yeah, so right now we're still a fairly small company, but also a quite diverse company. I think we are still, we're located in Copenhagen. So, of course, we are, there's an overweight of Danish people, um, but other than that, a multiple, multitude of nationalities and also different backgrounds. I mean, we have a... People from ranging from the more classical software engineering. Uh, we have software engineers with not that classical software engineering background. Me myself is a, uh, have a PhD in physics in uh, quantum physics. We have uh, another person that is a biologist by training. So it's a, a very diff- different skill. Skills definitely places where there is there are a lot of data, right? <laughs> by by nature, Defin- definitely. Definitely. And also the sort of the mindset of how to use it. And also I find the as my own background, it pops up now and again, with the interest of this knowing the why, because that, that's that's the reason I got into physics to begin with, sort of know how things work, which is translating very nice into uh, into now understanding why my model is giving a specific output. What is actually the the real world mechanic that makes it work but i think it's yeah. it's important when you do these uh, a product like dream data that you have different perspectives and different backgrounds because it complements very well uh, with people being uh, thinking different things are very important which always sort of tends to make a better product because about different views are competing
0: totally agree with you diverse teams heterogeneous teams are always the best uh, they always get their First, <laughs> uh, with respect to those with, you know, 100% engineers, 100% data scientists without domain expertise, you know, it's it's not going to work. Usually it doesn't work.
1: No, and I uh, also find my my work as a, as a data scientist is also way easier when I have these other roles to support me or I su- to support them the way you depend on how you view it. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's also something... I mean, you cannot do everything yourself. If I was to figure out how to extract something, and also how to build an app, and also how to build routing, how to uh, set up authentication, I mean, I would never sleep.
0: Um, <laughs> Michael, I think we are at the end now. There is one other question I would like to ask because today you were late because you were hiring someone. Are you guys still hiring?
1: <laughs> we we are still hiring. Uh, so we have different positions across basically across our our product team. Uh, so definitely go
0: check that out. Cool. So we're going to report definitely the, the link, uh, IO, and uh, some other references of the things that we've been speaking about in the show notes of this episode. As always, uh, we also invite you to the uh, official Discord channel. You will find the link in the show notes of this episode and also on the official website, home.com. This was Mikkel from uh, Dream Data IO, lead data scientist. Mikkel, it was a great conversation and uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. And I'm sure that the uh, listeners of Data Science at Home will do too. It was a pleasure. Huh? Take care. You've been listening to
1: Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.